Hi, Jean. I recognize you from your website. Are you kidding? What? No. Yeah. I just, when they said, you know, our, our poet in residence might consider publishing that, that other poem, the second poem. And I thought that you're going to be the one responsible for, for like doing the lesson planning around that. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, let's see who, let's see who this is and whether she knows what she's gotten into. <laughs> it will, yeah, it will be an honor to, yeah, to write about like the little preamble to the poem. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. I've got some ideas down, but. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm so, I'm so touched and honored and that, that you guys are going to publish that. You, you got to have an eye. Third Eye Education. Third Eye. Welcome to Third Eye. This is a special two-part episode. It's two parts because part number two is focused on a poem may cause discomfort. I want to make sure that you are choosing to click in and listen to it with full knowledge. You can find the link to that in the podcast description. Our guest today is Taylor Molly, a TED Best of the Web speaker most widely known for his viral spoken word poem, What Teachers Make, which has received over 13 million views on YouTube. Molly is a teacher, poet, voice actor, education advocate. Thank you to Taylor Molly for joining us today. Let's dive in. All right. How does it start? I'm just, I'm here. Wait, I'll, I will answer when I'm brought in. Absolutely. So we're just going to start out with a couple questions. And, and right now, I just want to talk about the fact that your poetry, part of what I love about it is it makes people uncomfortable about things that are really important to think about. And, and discomfort allows us to really think and dig deeply into, into everything. So I'm wondering if you could give us some insight on what it is that poetry, whether it be the act of reading it, the act of writing it, the act of performing it, teaching it, what is it that helps us? stretch our students and ourselves as learners? That's a great question. I'll give you my attempt at an answer. My mentor and friend, Billy Collins, likes to say that high school is where poetry goes to die. Most kids graduate from middle school with an inherent love of playing with language and fooling around with words and expressing themselves. And they go to high school and they graduate from high school thinking, I guess I was wrong. I don't like, I don't like poetry. Um, and that's why Billy Collins published Poetry 180. He said, these are 180 poems that I chose for the roughly 180 days of the school year. And my goal is that this poem, that, that some teacher uh, chooses a, a different student and practice. And I want you to read this poem to the students every day. Ideally, a poem a day. And please do not then ask them to write about it afterwards. Let them simply have a, a time of the day where they get to hear a poem and they can talk about it themselves. You can talk about it in class, you know, um, and if they, if they think they can get out of doing real work by, excuse me, Mr. Molly, can we just talk about that poem that we heard this morning by Ted Kuzer called Abandoned Farmhouse? You're like, absolutely, let's let's talk about it. Did, was I right in thinking that that poem is written entirely uh, in the third person? There is no, you know, there's no speaker of the poem. That's right. He's letting the objects do the speaking of the, of the place and the time. But um, poetry is where, high school is where poetry goes to die. Hmm. So we need to change the way we 
teach poetry and maybe just let it wash over students a little bit. One of the most important things that we can do for students in their relationship to poetry, and this is so hard, especially if you're teaching teenagers, is to let students know that it's okay to experience some ambiguity. You know, how many times do you, you know, have said or heard from students, can we just stop talking about the poem and just tell us what it means already? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? You know, Billy has that, that poem called uh, Introduction to Poetry, where he says, I tell my students, you know, to, to drop a mouse into the middle of a poem and watch it find its cheese. Enter a poem as though you would a dark room and search for the light switch on the wall. I ask them to water ski over the surface of the poem and wave to the author's name. But all they want to do... But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture the confusion what out of it. What do you mean? Love it. <laughs> So <laughs> that's like my favorite one to drop into like American lit at the start. And they're like, but. So what? one of the best ways to, to, to write about a poem, if you're teaching kids to write expositorily about a poem is to have them sort of um, take the reader on a guided tour of their discomfort with ambiguity. You know, when I first read the poem, this is what, came out to me, or this image brought to mind my own experience, and like make them feel comfortable and confident bringing to bear their own experience. This poem, gosh, I've only read it three times now, and I can't claim to know definitively what it means, but here's what I think about every time I read that poem. That's, that's the beginning of a student who I'm not worried about, and they're going to grow up to love poetry. The other thing I wanted to say in response to dealing with discomfort is Auden, W.H. Auden, who said that a poem might best be described as the clear explanation of mixed feelings. Not the opposite, right? Not the, oh. a, a mixed and wishy-washy explanation of clear feeling. If you know absolutely what this poem is about, don't express it in wishy-washy language, but the clear explanation of mixed, of mixed feelings. When it became obvious that my marriage was ending and we had filed for divorce, but it was not yet final, I was going up to, I, I used to own half of a house in the Berkshires, but my soon-to-be ex-wife Asked, you know, part of the terms I was going to have to say goodbye to this awesome house, which I loved. And so while she was off in Bali having her eat, pray, love moment, I was supposed to go up to the Berkshires and ent empty the house of all of my stuff, which meant some had to go in storage, some had to be given away, and some had to be, you know, moved. And so I went, this was months had gone by, we're just waiting for the divorce to be finalized. I've already met somebody, I'm already in love again, and I go to the uh, Berkshire Co-op in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and I pull out my little, you know, my little journal, littler, littler than this. I often have these tiny little moleskin journals and I keep them everywhere. Uh, can't find one of them right now, but I always have a journal with me. And so I order my coffee and I'm sitting there and I'm writing, I can't decide whether I wanna write about my broken heart 
or whether I want to write about how wonderful it is to be in love again. And at first I said to myself, you cannot write another sentence until you decide whether you are happy or sad. And then I realized, no, oh. no, no. I need to do a better job of describing how I am both things at, at once. And that's about being comfortable with, with ambiguity and, and, and using poetry to process how you, how you think about the world. I've never written a poem because I was sure how I felt about something, but I have written poems to help me reach a greater level of clarity. That's, that's the best answer I can give. I think that's, that's a great answer, I think. It really, it's so human in terms of connecting what poetry could do to get through some tough times and open up new doors too. Taylor, I was in a workshop with Maggie Smith this weekend. I had a poem that we were workshopping. The working title right now is Recommendation Date Closeted Gay Men. And one of the people in the workshop had said, I'm wondering why it doesn't seem that the narrator is completely heartbroken to find out that her exes are, are gay. And Maggie Smith came in right away with just what you were saying and said, does she have to be only heartbroken? Can't she also appreciate the relationships? And so I love that dichotomy and, and poetry really does address that. And I know, Jean, you do that a lot in, in your works as well. Yes, I absolutely agree with what Taylor said, that if you know what you're going to write about, then you are less excited to write about it. So it's not going to happen. And so you hear something or you see something and then it becomes, but what does this mean? And then you answer your own question as you go through. And then as you revise the poem, you're like, oh, what does this mean? And it continues to build and build. And then I think it's also an argument that the poem is never done because it means something else tomorrow. And then you go back in and what does this mean now? And what does this mean a year from now? It's really hard to convince students to keep working on things once they click submit. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I have. One of the best assignments that I've had as a part of my master's program was to record yourself while you're writing because we want to prove to you that revision isn't after you're done. It's not finish and then revise. It's a continuous process as you write. Yeah, you, know, you write right, one sentence, right. you write a second sentence, you go back to the first, you fix it, you make some adjustments. Uh, and so you had to record yourself as you wrote, so your screen was on there, and then you had to speak about what you were doing. And that was the first time that I went, I'm teaching revision all wrong. It's it's not finish the whole thing and go back. That's a, it's, it's not, here's your first draft, here's your second. Uh, it's a... a uh, right. Uh, yeah. It's a thought process on paper. So many things I want to say in response to that. For a performance poet, uh, uh, actually, the the first live performance of your poem is also part of the editing process. I write spoken word. When most people say slam poetry, what they mean is spoken word. But spoken word is what I call poetry written with the specific intent that the first time it's ever experienced, it's going to be heard before it's ever read. To me, the poem as performed is an advertisement for the book that the poem comes from. And only people who come up and say, hey, I love that poem. Can I see it again? You're like, oh, of course, buy my book. 
signed Good Bones broadside by Maggie Smith. I saw that you were digging something out. I was like, ooh, what is it? I sent her a copy of my metaphor dice. She let her sons fool around with it and mm-hmm. uh, and then posted that. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I went on Amazon. I was like, why am I suddenly selling so many sets of metaphor dice today? Oh, it's because Maggie Smith mentioned them on her Instagram or whatever. We were just talking about those earlier today. Actually, I was sharing with our team the poem that Andrea Gibson did with your poetry dice. Like, I love Andrea Gibson. But can you talk a little bit more about your metaphor dice and, and what they are and how people Absolutely. can use them in the classroom and such? I, I do a poetry exercise with my students. Many people have done a similar thing. You go in and you say, all right, give me a list of 20 abstract nouns, concrete nouns, and adjectives. Then you have to explain what the difference between an abstract noun and a concrete noun is. But when you get them on the board, you say, pick one from every column and you have a metaphor. Love is an overgrown meal. Like, oh, what's an overgrown meal? You know, if you said that, nobody would think you meant that literally. That's a metaphor. Who has not feasted on the overgrown meal of love? And then your job in the rest of the poem, insofar as any poem gives you a job, is to explicate or justify why that metaphor is true. So I'm doing this, and it takes me almost the entire class to get everybody to the point where they're picking a word from the column. And there's this one girl who isn't engaged. And uh, I said, well, pick three words. And she said, my father broken mirror. It's like, okay, that's a metaphor. My father is a broken mirror. Nobody would think you meant that literally. Her eyes sort of lit up. And I said, yeah, a metaphor is an equation between a big thing and a small thing with maybe an adjective thrown in. So she worked with that. I came back and she had written this. My father is a broken mirror, which is to say he's been shattered into a thousand pieces and he's hard to hold now without drawing blood. My mother says he is seven years of bad luck, but even in the smallest pieces, I can still recognize my own reflection. And I thought, I get goosebumps every time I think about that. And I thought, oh my God, if only there were a game where you could just generate a whole lot of metaphors really quickly, see which one spoke to you, and then explore them. And so that's where I got the idea for metaphor dice. It's a box of 12 dice, red, white, and blue. The reds are the big concepts. The whites are the adjectives and the blues are the concrete nouns. And you take three and you roll them like this, which I'm gonna do on my table. And you get getting fired. (laughs) Getting fired is a mad midwife. Who, Who knows nothing of the mad midwife of getting fired? The shadow. The shadow is an unspoken sideshow. Who knows nothing of the unspoken sideshow of the shadow? So it just, it, get, it, it turns the act of writing poetry into a physically manipulative product. Uh, there's also an app for iOS. And it just, I've had teachers who say that, uh, I know this guy in LA who goes around and he teaches creative writing classes at a bunch of different schools. And sometimes it's like drawing teeth. But he said the first time he used the dice, the kids loved it so much that when he went back the second time, they said, where are the dice? So that's been around for since 2018, and I've released a second one. And I'm, I'm fascinated, Taylor, because one of our previous guests was the author of A Beautiful Constraint. And what you're doing is 
constraining the number of words that students can choose from in order to help them dig deeper and know what is a metaphor and what isn't. Uh, You're clarifying, like the constraint of those dice is really what's making the experience powerful. Well, it's it's a constraint, and it's but it's also an, an invitation. Right? Absolutely. You know, Robert Frost said, and this is just like genius in a sentence. He said, "The genie gets its power from the bottle." So the cons- the constraint and working against the constraint is 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 part of where the power comes from. So yeah, I'm telling you. Like, I'm going to constrain you by having you only use these words. That said, in a box of 12 dice, there are over 13,000 possible unique metaphors. And so if a kid rolls, you know, happiness is a mad sideshow. I tell people in the directions, resist the urge to say, no, it's not. (laughs) Because that's what a lot of kids will do. You said happiness is a mad sideshow. Who knows nothing of the mad sideshow of happiness? They might go, "Mm, no, it's not. And you go, okay, well then change one word. Change one word to make it better. Now, use the poem to take us through your thought process. Happiness is no mad sideshow. Happiness is the, it is mad, but it is the main event. You know, I don't know. Change one word and make it more true. So it's a constraint and an invitation at the same time. I love, Taylor, that you just, going back to what Nick was saying about uh, constraint, and you just connected back into also what Barden talks about, which is this can-if strategy. But it can be if you shift yeah. that word yeah. slightly, right? Gene, I know that you essentially use the same strategy when you've been writing recently, at least. Yeah, and actually, as you were talking about the metaphor dice, I thought of an activity that I do with my creative writing class where I trick them first and I don't tell them it's a metaphor on the board will brainstorm and I say, what is the most specific action or process someone could do? And they'll begin with, oh, a process is baking a cake and blah, blah. I'm like, no, it has to be incredibly specific. So the students will end up with something like jumping off a cliff into a pile of mashed potatoes, but you wish there was gravy. And so you just have these crazy things on the board And then you say, okay, pick one and title it Ars Poetica and now do your thing. And it's, it's pretty cool. And then when they share them, like if I picked Heather's, whatever Heather suggested, it's kind of the sense of pride. Like I got so-and-so to write this poem. I'm brilliant. So tricking them into it, which I think you can do with the dice too, is, is really fun. I love tricking students into writing something (laughs) that they didn't realize was awesome. Uh, One of my favorite exercises is going in and saying, you know, what was your favorite toy when you were a kid? And they go, this one-eyed stuffed bunny. Okay, now name a thing that you associate with your mother. Like uh, a glass of wine. Okay, fine. What's the thing you associate with your father? And they go, "Uh, a business class ticket. And And then you unfold the paper and it becomes... I was born in the year of the one-eyed stuffed bunny. Instead of a father, I had a business class airline ticket. Instead of a mother, I had a glass of wine. And they realized, oh my God, that's great. My mother is a glass of wine. My father, and you tricked them into writing a metaphor. So the secret of great teaching is to trick your students into working 
harder and better than they thought. I think there's this moment in the in the poem, one of the two poems that you shared with us that we're going to have on our site. Um, there's this moment in it where you almost kind of trick the reader. You you have us kind of startled and and um, uncomfortable, um, and then you kind of show a, a moment when you trick students into understanding that actually this is a learning opportunity and at the same time the reader is going oh yeah right would you do you mind sharing that with us taylor all right all right all right i'm so all right at this point in the podcast you will draw your attention to the link in the podcast description the second half of the episode focuses on material that some may find out 